Hey, Zathos here. We've got a small Patreon to help us keep the lights on at the station. So if you wouldn't mind just going to patreon.com forward slash Babylon project and just throwing us a buck or two, it would really be appreciated. And Jude says that if we reach $31, they'll feed me. Incoming transmission from the Babylon project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch pod for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Hey, Jude. Hey, Anna. How you doing this evening? I'm good. It's it's going to snow. It's supposed to snow here, which, living in the D.C. area, is wild, and I'm extremely excited. Yeah, we're going to get the tail end of that uh, out here in Ohio in a day. For for reference, as a Californian, um, what is snow? What is snow? There's a fifty percent chance of rain on Thursday, and that's it. That's all the weather I get. Oof. <laughs> I, I frankly, frankly, the California tradition of a of a sunny fifty five degree Christmas is honestly its own charming thing in itself. As a former Californian, I disagree. California Christmases are depressing and stupid, and. Uh, the Midwest is a superior Christmas locale in all respects. So that's one thing that the Midwest has going for it. I, I think I win on depressing Christmas here because Maryland is cold and damp. So it generally does not have snow or anything charming weather related, but also it sucks and you can't go outside. Yeah, that sounds lose-lose. Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, we're doing a, a, a extra beefy episode uh, this time. Uh, we are doing three episodes because um, we got a numbering on the episode wrong, and uh, somebody, me, uh, did not read the Excel sheet for last uh, episode, and so we are going to be doing a filler for the first part of this one. But uh, so that's going to be episode. 17 of season one legacies as well as a big beefy two-parter voice in the wilderness i would just like to point out very briefly that uh whoever put together the uh template for these episode outlines called this a brief summary of the episode and uh i don't think any of us have ever written a brief summary um ever so i would like to petition that 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 line be changed to uh, sarcastic or uh, beefy or some other adjective because I believe brief is disingenuous and false. Also, um, since since we are watching a 90s show, I would like to say that beef, it's what's for dinner. Yeah, there you go. Seconded. It's all non-content left beef. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're going to start off this evening with season one, episode 17. Legacies, written by DC Fontana and directed by Bruce Seth Green. Uh, we're gonna start. We're gonna we're gonna do the A plot and B plot separately because they, for the most part, don't intertwine with this. With nothing further ado, let's take this away. 
We start off with Sinclair and Garibaldi in C, where they are awaiting the arrival of a Minbari cruiser. The body of a Minbari war leader is being paraded as it returns to Minbar, stopping at every port to let them lie in state. When the ship arrives, Sinclair is clearly uncomfortable. This reminds him of the Battle of the Line. Not a lot of great memories there. However, upon arrival, scans show that the gun ports of the Minbari ship are open. The commander of the vessel refuses to give an explanation, but Delenn says this is a sign of respect, that they are carrying a great leader. This is totally a normal, regular thing to do, apparently, and uh, the Minbari are not big on, like, explaining things, apparently. Um, just approach a military installation with guns open. I'm sure nothing will ever go bad about that. No, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's totally just perfect. Delenn invites Sinclair and Garibaldi to meet the body of Shai Elite Bramner with his executive officer, Elite Nerun, leading the procession. They welcome Bramner's body with an honor guard, and the coffin is taken to lie in state. Delenn thanks Sinclair for allowing this, and notes that this is an unusual circumstance. However, this procession was insisted upon by Bramner's clan, the Star Riders, and Delenn adds that she does not approve of it. Sinclair voices his dis-ease with the matter, as Bramner was one of the leaders of the Minbari at the Battle of the Line. Later, Sinclair and Garibaldi are discussing things, but Nerun intrudes and demands certain security details be added, like that only Minbari guards are allowed to protect Bramner's body until the viewing ceremony the next day. Sinclair agrees, but he makes it clear he is not a fan of Nerun's tone. Who is, though? Yeah, who is? The next day, the viewing ceremony gets off to a bad start when the body is missing. A uh, question I want to inject real fast. Is this the first time we've met Naroon? Yes, I believe so. I think so, yeah. Cool. Both Naroon and Delenn are probably rightfully outraged with the former threatening war if the Shyalit's body is not found. Sinclair and Delenn confer in the ambassador's quarters, where Delenn reveals that Bramner was originally a member of the religious caste, but became a warrior when the war broke out. Delenn mentioned that there is also some remaining bitterness from the warrior caste on how the war ended, and that might be tinging the conversation a little bit. Garibaldi starts his investigation with the Narn. Natoth denies any involvement and suggests the carrion eaters in down below. Nerun visits Garibaldi later, and while meeting, one of the guards reports that some of Branmer's robes were found outside the Pakmara quarters. The Pakmara are a species of carrion eaters. They deny any involvement, but they have Dr. Franklin pump their stomachs just for fun, I guess. This such so I'm sorry. This it's it, it really the, is. It's it is such a, a fucking horrifying <laughs> plot point here <laughs> yeah it's um yes ambassador wow. we recognize that we recognize that your dietary requirements are are unique among the station we're just gonna pump your stomach i'm sure that's all right ambassador just yeah, out of an overabundance can... of caution <laughs> you and your entire species are going to have their stomachs pumped i find it like 
the Pakmarab must be used to this at some point. Or yeah. it's like, maybe it's pleasurable to them or something. Because the, <laughs> like, they don't even really cause a fuss about this. They just, they're like, fine, we'll do it. Which, honestly, <laughs> if I was an ambassador, I was like, hey, hey, ambassador, uh, uh, your excellency, uh, Mr. Hunter, um, if you could, uh, if we could pump your stomach, we believe that you ate a foreign general. <laughs> Also, why couldn't they just do, like, a stool sample? I don't know. Maybe, maybe they would have well, considered it dishonorable to sit the... I don't know. I mean, I was having your stomach pump. But- Medical technology in this show is so wildly inconsistent. Yeah. We're going to later in another episode, Franklin it has a device that can scan for life energy. Life energy. Life energy. But he needs... Is this... He needs a fucking... He, he needs to pump a stomach to tell whether there's Minbari DNA inside the Pakmara. Like... It's it's just, like, done for laughs. Like, har har, pump the Pakmara stomach, har har. Right? I swear, if I ever play a B5 RPG, I'm going to play a Pakmara and just eat everyone. <laughs> Just everything. <laughs> anyway. I feel like... Have fun, have fun with that aside, Zathras. Hey, um, Anna, Jude, do you want to guess what they find when they pump the Pachmara's stomach? I it d- is not, in fact, the remains of Branmer. It's fucking nothing. Were they, were they on a juice cleanse? I was hoping you were going to say, like, a lifeguard. Yeah, they find nothing of the stomach contents, and Darun starts to get impatient. I mean, maybe if you hadn't insisted on this... Very excessive procedure. Anyways, when Sinclair returns to his quarters that evening, he is attacked by Darun. Dude, have some fucking chill. Darun is conducting a search here, as he believes that it is the one place no one would look. Yeah, you're just gonna hide a dead body underneath the bed. Um, Sinclair informs him that his quarters were searched with Delenn at the start of the investigation, just for this eventuality. Okay, and why are they, if you're going to steal a body, why would you keep it? Just vent it out the station or like, I don't know. Why would you keep it? Why would you? I don't know. Whatever. Fine. Moving on. There are, there are aspects of this plot that make no fucking sense. Yes. Right. Right. And this is, it's fine. It's fine. We'll get there. We're going to keep trucking. We're going to keep trucking here. We're going to get to the yeah. end of this episode. <laughs> um we get a quick crossover from our B plot where the relevant uh, guest star of said plot reveals that Delenn knows who took the body. Sinclair and Garibaldi confront Delenn, who is carrying Bramner's cremated remains. She explains that Bramner would not want to become a symbol of war and wouldn't have wanted the spectacle for his passing. And Delenn believes that she can get away with explaining the, the disappearing body as a religious mystery. Delenn, really? Really, buddy? Buddy? She is worried that if word gets out of what really happened, it will form a rift between casts. She agrees to tell Nairin the truth, but explains that she will be the one to tell him. They meet privately. The latter is, I think, maybe rightfully infuriated with what's going on, but Delenn scolds him for disobeying Branmer's wishes. She promises that if he makes a fuss, she will see his clan disgraced. She also orders him to apologize privately to Sinclair. When Nehru does, Sinclair 
graciously accepts and promises to send his condolences to Midbar as a foe's praise is considered a worthy memorial. Nerud respects this, even commenting that Sinclair talks like a Minbari. So, so, let's, uh, let's move on to the B-plot now. This is going to be a lot faster, I promise y'all. A teenage girl is caught stealing some shit. She is revealed to be a telepath as Talia picks up her <clears throat> mind burst. <laughs> Very nice. Franklin checks her out in med lab and Talia explains that sometimes telepaths have these mind bursts as they reach puberty and develop later. You mean that he examines her, not that he actually checks her out. Though that would not be beyond Franklin. Her, yes. Uh, <laughs> as the episode that I wrote a summary of, Franklin is a complete fucking creeper. So I just want to be yeah, clear. Yeah, examine. Examine. Okay, there. thank you. Prepare yourself, listeners, for... there. There's a whole allegory about the rights of children and stuff, but we're going to just go through like sort of the main plot points here. Talia wants to contact the Psychor to bring her into the fold, but Ivanova uses the excuse of her being a criminal to keep this a station matter for the moment. Our telepath, Alyssa Beldod, was an orphan who lost her father last year and has been living in Down Below. She is a strong telepath, as we find out later, a P-10. But she has very little control. Ivanova wants to prevent this girl from being sent to the core, and Sinclair supports her in finding an alternative. They suggest having her sheltered by another race, placing her outside of the Psycor's jurisdiction. When she meets with Jakar, he offers her a life of comfort and luxury in exchange for assistance with providing genetic examples so the Narn can uh, have assistance with developing telepaths of their own. She originally is interested, but after scanning Jakar's mind and finding it inhospitable, she expresses reservations. She is next taken to Delenn, who explains that Minbari telepaths are honored in their culture. Elisa reads Delenn's thoughts, which is where this intersects with the A-plot, and Elisa tells Sinclair that Delenn stole the body. After that whole deal with the A-plot is over, Delenn informs Sinclair that they have decided to offer Elisa a place in the Minbari. Delenn hopes that this will be a bridge between their people. Elisa leaves, but before she departs, Sinclair asks her if she found anything while reading Glenn's mind. She remembers just one word. Chrysalis. Da-da-da! And that's Legacies. Let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about this one. It didn't really make sense. I, I feel like it just means that Delenn is extremely bad at planning. And that Navroon is very bad at investigating. I think that we have like the opposite of what happens when a master criminal goes uh, against a master detective, which is just the Minbari aren't good at being criminals. I it, It's also one of those episodes that feels weirdly like a tabletop RPG plot, like pound table. Yeah. We pump the stomachs. Are you... Are you are you sure you want to do that? Yes, we pump the stomachs. You don't find anything. I would like to roll bureaucracy. <laughs> okay, that's a 19. Okay, yeah. They, they comply with your request. They make some grumbling about it. You don't find anything. You find some, <laughs> You find like what you would normally find in a Pac-Baraz stomach. No, I do not know what you find in a Pac-Baraz stomach normally. <laughs> why, do you th- why would you think I would have that written down? <laughs> As an aside... There is an official B5 RPG. Just throwing that out there. I've listened to the System Mastery episode on it. We should think about that for future bonus content. Here's 
my thing with Delenn. Delenn is very good at what she does and not so good at like anything else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's min-maxed. Yeah. She's like min-maxed hard into like, I'm not even sure what it is that she's min-maxed into. <laughs> like religious prophecy scheming, I guess, would be her, her dumps, would be her, her main stat with like maybe a I secondary, guess. but like, and maybe with a secondary and like very situational political scheming, because sometimes Delenn nails politics, but then sometimes not. But this isn't this isn't her not nailing politics. This is her she she nails the politics part of it really well when she's like, "Well, Nerun, you know you you shouldn't bring this up to anybody else because yeah, you've true. been a naughty naughty boy, and the Mimbari's gonna spank you." She just makes a, a very poor decision to do it in the first place. Right. It's like the, the whole idea to like, okay, you know, that would be a great idea. It'd be a great idea to to steal that body and we're gonna we're just gonna steal the body and nobody's gonna notice. And I mean if they do notice, it's just gonna be like a religious well, miracle. She's It'll a be fucking, fine. Well, cause she's a zealot. I mean, I think that's really what this boils down to. Delenn's a zealot and she doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> she, well, you know what she is? Yeah. Delenn's a Delenn's a white man. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she's not used to there being consequences for her swinging her authority around. Because okay. she's used to being on the council. Because if she had done this on the council, nobody would have said anything. But all of a sudden, she's not on the council. She's just like some schmuck ambassador. And all of a sudden, when you like take a body, people are offended for some reason. And she suddenly has consequences. <laughs> That's the Delenn's problem. She's she's been on the council for so long. She's never had consequences. Yeah. Well, and the, that I feel like there's also the this episode's like zealot versus zealot. Yeah. Between Delenn and Narun. Yeah. And perhaps in with uh, Talia and Ivanova. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, perhaps. Perhaps some parallel. Yeah. Parallel plotting. Uh, my my second point, and I'll be done, and we can move on is i love the guy who plays naroon and i love i love to hate naroon yeah he's great he will come back a bunch and you will never not want to it's not that you want him to die because he's not enough of a bad guy that you want naroon to die and it's not even that you want to like slam his face in the door you just want to like throw cold spaghetti at him it's, you, you want to offend, characters you want to yeah. offend his dignity Enough that he stands there spluttering. That's what I want for Naroon all the time. He's one Every of those characters time. where you want to take a you want to take a spray bottle full of water, spritz him in the face, and just go, no. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the B plot maybe a little bit, because I feel like the B plot, like it almost had promise, but it's so bad. Yeah. The only part I like about it is Ivanova's just reckless fuck youery. She just Yeah. It it it, the only part of it that's good is it carries on. It continues this characterization of Ivanova giving absolutely zero fucks when it comes to screwing the 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 Psycor. She yeah is willing to interpret station law so liberally it might as well be written in crayon in order to <laughs> fuck the tele, the Psycor here. And Talia yeah. is just like Talia is just like. What is happening? What 
what universe have we suddenly been teleported to that this is what's going on right now? And it's like, Ivanova's universe. Fuck you. Like, deal with it. And I, I kind of like that, that Talia is like so impressed with Ivanova's sheer fucking fury and gumption that she's, you can tell she's kind of into it. Like, there are definitely scenes where you can tell Talia is not as angry as she should be at the level of interference that Ivanova is bringing to bear on the situation. I think I think part of the problem is that the actor who they cast to play the like teen telepath is just not not stellar. Hot smoking garbage. <laughs> I'm I sorry. That poor, I, I, that I poor kid. Yeah, like I don't want to okay, that might be a little harsh, but it's just like peak 90s teen actor annoying. Yeah, it feels like she's like transported from like a Disney TV show or something. Mm-hmm. No, mom, I don't want to do my laundry. Yep, very accurate. It doesn't. It doesn't really work. I googled out of curiosity the director of this episode, and boy howdy, does he have an entertaining directing credential? He directed a bunch of classic '90s crap. Uh, oh, wild. Law and Order, Xena, Hercules, Sequest, Buffy, some of the worst Buffy episodes. Oh, no. Phases, oh, no. Ted, The Dark Age, Halloween, Some Assembly Required, The Pack, Teacher's Pet. Just some real stinkers from that first season. He also did some uh, Highlander, the series. Yep. Oh, goodness. Some Highlander. He also did uh, an episode of Dawson's Creek, a couple episodes of Angel, one of my least favorite episodes of Gilmore Girls, a couple episodes of Roswell. <laughs> so all over the map uh, in the yeah, 90s. This is a little wild. I don't really have a thesis. He here. also did the pilot for Charmed. Is that what that episode is? That's the pilot for Charmed? Yeah. Wow. Oof. Oof a doofus. This, this is a. I do not begrudge anyone in Hollywood for ascribing to the keep getting them checks uh, mentality, but dang. I also looked up Nimrud's actor uh, because I remember, like, I, I apparently had done this before when I watched the episode because. He has one of those. He has one of those voices and demeanors. So this is hilarious. He is. He has been on three separate Star Trek series. Oh, of course, one of those. Um, he he is a Cardassian Gull in three episodes, and he appears on TNG and in Enterprise as a Klingon prosecutor. But the funny part of this is that if I you think can, I remember that Gull. He he's like he's part of Demar's resistance, but he's yeah. like a traitor. Combine all of his Star Trek appearances, it is still less appearances than his like six episodes on B five, which Lol. I find that funny. Wow, he's had a career. That's funny. This 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 episode I think is the one where it like initially came up to me is like, so when did humans get telepaths? Is this something they've always had? And just like we called them witches back of the. T- Day, no, or... it's recent. It's recent. It's like, you know, um, it's what's supposed to be late 22nd century. I actually looked it up. It's I, I wrote that and then I, I Googled it and it's uh, early 22nd century. 20, okay. 2115, I think, is what it said in the wiki was when uh, the first telepaths were scientifically verified in Interesting. B5 history. I do not 
know Babylon 5 history as much as I do Star Trek and can probably quote you the exact date of first contact, but uh, is that before or after humanity makes contact with aliens? I believe that's pre. Well, interesting contact that they're aware of. As we as we know with uh, the the guy from last time who was going to court against um, the, oh, the Roswell Gray. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. And and we we also know that the Psychor has been like doing selective breeding yeah. um, to to strengthen telepathic abilities, presumably since then. My other question for this episode is that do like how bad are Earthers at just like asking like, hey, what's this tradition of the aliens are going to? Because it feels like that like. Every like I get it. There, it's it's a it's a vehicle through which we can explain this weird alien quirk of the week. But Earthers seem very bad at like just knowing anything about aliens. Yeah, this is a weird thing that comes up a lot around, especially the first season. I've noticed in this show where aliens act like they don't know fuck all about it. Other aliens, and I don't know. Like, look. Any alien that finds humans is going to know all about humans because there's no way that humans aren't going to be shamelessly forthcoming with alien races. We're going to try and fuck everything and we won't be able to (laughs) shut up. And like, that's just how humans are. But I don't know. Maybe other aliens aren't going to be quite so gross. Um, Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I definitely think I definitely get the impression from Babylon 5 that everybody thinks humans are buttholes and they don't want anything to do with Earth Force more than absolutely necessary. And nobody tells Earth anything they don't have to just because they think we're all tools. You know, that makes sense. That's scans. Like, if I was an alien and had to deal with, like, Earth Force and saw how they generally have been depicted in the series, it was like, hmm, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Is is this is this why humans aren't allowed to fight in the Mutai? Because humans have <laughs> such assholes. a bad reputation for being tools. <laughs> Honestly, that that's I believe that. Jude, do we want to talk about the gun ports open thing? Is that something yeah. that Justin knows about at this point? Um, is that something know- that Justin is supposed that, to know about? If they had watched the gathering, is that in the gathering? I don't think so. <sighs> It's not, this, this spoiler. Spoiler. it's not a huge spoiler. It's not a huge spoiler. I think it's fine to talk about. I think we're supposed to know about it at this point, maybe. Um, that's how the Earth-Nimbari War started, which uh, is okay. that an Earth ship had first contact with Mimbari cruiser, and the cruiser, as a sign of respect, um, came at it with the gun ports open and, of course, shield tech, etc., off, and the Earth ship blew them out of the sky <laughs> because humans are dumbasses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that might be a spoiler for you, but I feel like it's relevant. That doesn't to feel up. like a spoiler. So yeah. And I think it says, it says something. Well, I think it's more fun to point out now rather than be like, Justin, do you remember how that cruiser approached B5 with its gun ports oh open? Gosh, I would never remember that. <laughs> but yeah, that's a specific, that's like a specific oh, okay. thing. Um, that they tie back into. I feel like we should talk about the Mimbari kind of in general here as well. 
um, because we get a lot more detail with like the kind of Mimbari culture with the casts. Mm-hmm. Um, so we learn that people can switch casts. Yeah, that was interesting. Where it's it's always been kind of portrayed as like you're born into a cast and that's how you're raised and that's how you, you know, continue. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess that dude switched. So that's something. And I think, Jude, you had some things to say about the kind of like Mimbari honor thing. Yeah. Also, I'd like to note that the Mimbari warrior cast armor definitely looks a lot like samurai armor to the point where it makes me uncomfortable. I am rapidly reaching the point where I don't feel comfortable speaking to how inappropriate the Minbari, the the like reliance on honor as a cultural foundation trope is amongst the Minbari, but to whatever degree it is inappropriate, how it's depicted in this episode is pretty standard for how we'll see it throughout the rest of the show. The idea that among the warrior cast, it's a big fucking deal. Among the religious cast, they have their rules that they follow, but they follow it in a more like less rigid, more spirit of the law, not letter of the law kind of way. The warrior cast in particular, I think, is a much more problematic, mm-hmm. much more problem. Over time, by the end of the first season, is a much more problematic uh, bit of Orientalism than like the religious cast or um, the not appearing in this TV series worker cast. So I don't know if at some point we want to bring a guest on, uh, someone who can yeah. talk about it, or... If we want to just, you know, just acknowledge that that is problematic and just kind of have that be the statement. But I definitely think uh, having now now that we've seen what the warrior cast wear and we've got a pretty good taste for their honor shtick, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that that's not not great uh, and it's not going anywhere. Like we're going to be getting a lot of the warrior casts honor horse shit. Uh, as we go, so I think it's one of those things that it sort of kind. I it's been a fad for way too long, but it, it was definitely a thing that feels very nineties. Is having your honorable warrior samurai thing, Jude. I, I, as your as one of your other projects can attest, that was a bit of a thing in the nineties. Yeah, and I, I I think yeah, if you if you look at the armor, you can tell that there's a pretty clear design inspiration and it isn't going so far as like what we had in tko where we're having a bunch of character or actors who are portraying the what is basically the alien version of yellow face mm-hmm. it's still definitely a thing where we it's like we're going to lob onto this aesthetic as hard as we can yeah they're they're definitely using like samurai tropes as a cultural touchstone Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of like doing stuff for the honor of the clan, the safe face. It's it's very, it's coming from a very specific like touchdown of tropes. Yeah, I do. I do want to say something else with the Mimbari though. That is, I think, a good thing that I've been that we're starting to get into now, which is along with the bad costuming, we're seeing a lot more variety in the. Mimbari head skull ridge things. Mm -hmm. And I always find the costuming aspects of like various 
families and clans having different kind of skull bone patterns to be fascinating. Like that that Delens and Lanier's are both like re- reasonably smooth, as are most people from the religious caste, as far as we see. Yeah. But they're also very different from one another. Um, but Lanier's are closer to other people from his clan. Yeah. And then the warrior cast all have those like terrifying spiky heads. Yeah. Reverse triceratops ridge thing going on. Yeah, where it's like you you can kind of imagine that like if they were to headbutt somebody with those things, that it would be deadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's just a cool bit of costuming. Yeah. I like the world building that they put into the Minbari. I think they put a lot of work into making it not a straight up like Japan analog, but they're definitely, it's definitely there. Uh, and when you notice it, it feels bad. Um, and uh, we'll see the, and the, the ways in which they use it is not good ways. Yeah. I, I like it better when they're just going with space elves. I like them better as space elves than space Asians. I think that the Minbari are maybe the one, like, big player in, like, out of, like, sort of the core four races that species in B5 that I don't see... There, there aren't a ton of, like, historical analogs compared to, like, the Centauri Earth or the Narn. They're hitting some real historical analogs, and it's like... And comparatively, it makes it, like... Hammering that one historical reference makes that a little bit weirder when, like, they don't have as clear, like, there isn't an allegory or historical reference that the story of the Minbari is trying to reference. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got anything else we want to talk about this episode? No. It's more DC Fontana. Yeah, we stand. We we stand forever, Even, even if it's a mediocre episode. Yeah. Do we want to go on to Voice in the Wilderness? Yeah, I'm gonna just go, I'm gonna go like make some tea right now and let you do your uh, intro because this is gonna be a long one. Yeah, I I did try to be concise. Um, so this is episode 18 and 19 of season one, um, A Voice in the Wilderness, parts one and two, uh, written by JMS and directed by Janet Greek. So buckle in, everyone. This is our first two-parter. Surprising no one, we open with a newcomer arriving at the station. This time we've got an elderly male Mimbari who asks for directions to see Ambassador Delenn. Uh, we get away from him right away, however, to find that CNC has a new phenomenon it's dealing with. Epsilon 3, the planet that B5 is orbiting, is turning out to be substantially less geologically stable than previously believed and is experiencing some large earthquakes. Sinclair clears the shuttle for a geological survey to gather more data, but things get even weirder. An energy beam from the planet disables the shuttle, which then has to be towed back to the station. The geologists are undeterred from their mystery hunting and are excited to try again the next day. Further investigation by Ivanova reveals that the beam was in fact a signal, one that the B5 team is not yet able to decipher. However, it might have something to do with a flickering image that appears in Sinclair's quarters that night of an alien who asks his help before vanishing. Returning to our new Mimbari friend, he turns out to be an old friend and mentor of Delens named Drawl. 
He's left Minbar because he feels that it's it's changing for the worse, with growing dissatisfaction and self-involvement among his population. He tells Delenn that he's going to the sea, which from context we learn that uh, he's journeying out into the stars to try to find a purpose and a place where he's needed, and that he does not intend to return. Delenn is shocked and saddened by this news, but is is glad to reunite with her friend during this time that they have left together. The next day, the geologists head back to the planet. This time, their shuttle is not hit by an energy beam, but instead by missiles. Uh, launched from deep within the planet's surface, a, a fissure five kilometers deep. The shuttle is once again rescued by Star Furies, uh, towed back to the station, and Sinclair and Ivanova figure out how to how to dodge the missiles and hop in a shuttle to head down themselves. They head deep into that fissure and find an artificial tunnel in the rock face um, deep inside. They head in, land, and pop on the fancy B-5 breather masks to do some exploring. Um, they escape some Indiana Jones-style death traps and reach a bridge over a chasm and realize that they're not in a planet so much as the core of a giant machine. Finally, the two reach a familiar-looking alien, um, the one who appeared in Sinclair's quarters, who is strapped into the machine. The alien asks again for their help, stating that without it, everyone on the station will die. They help him out of the machine and head back to the station with the hopes that Dr. Franklin will be able to help him. Our between-episode cliffhanger hits, however, as the jump gate opens, and it's announced that a big ship is coming through. The big ship turns out to be the Hyperion, an Earth Alliance heavy cruiser commanded by Captain Ellis Pierce, who apparently has been ordered to take control of the situation. Well, the alien's condition stabilizes in MedLab, Sinclair meets with Pierce. It turns out that the Hyperion was diverted from hyperspace to help, and that Earth wants them to make a show of force so that Earth can get first dibs on that sweet, sweet, sweet alien tech on the planet. Sinclair is pissed. Uh, he had the situation under control before the giant gunship turned up, and he has jurisdiction over the sector, unlike Pierce. He calls up our good friend Senator Hidoshi to confirm that he does, in fact, have jurisdiction. And the senator says that he'll do what he can to, to get that confirmation, but uh, says that EarthGov is currently busy with the B-plot. Pierce and the Hyperion are already getting busy helping though, and have launched an expedition to the planet's surface. Surprise, surprise, the planet's defense systems are now much more aggressive, and Sinclair gets them to call off the expedition, for now, by claiming that he and Ivanova used a jamming device on their trip. Making the bad news worse, seismic activity is once again increasing, and in less than 48 hours, the planet will blow, taking the station with it. And even with every ship in the sector chipping in, the station still would not be able to be evacuated in time. Checking back in on Delenn and Drawl, the alien from the planet reappears and calls out for them, and they head to MedLab. Once they arrive, the alien awakens and calls out to Drawl and says that everyone must stay away from the planet or it will explode, which we've already figured out, and that the planet needs another at its heart to stabilize. Sinclair and Pierce have another heated discussion. Pierce believes that the alien is lying to keep people away and keep his hands on that sweet, sweet alien tech. 
Um, and Pierce wants to send down another expedition. Sinclair believes the alien and also does not want to gamble the lives of a quarter of a million people and threatens to shoot down Pierce's ships if they approach the station. Pierce once again backs down. Uh, and because what the situation needed was more complications, uh, this is when another ship comes through the jump gate. This one containing aliens who appear to be from the same species as the one from the planet. They claim that the planet belongs to them and give Sinclair and Pierce 10 hours to leave. Um, Pierce decides that he will not be bested in this dick-waving contest and fires back with his own ultimatum. The aliens have nine hours to leave. The alien from the planet, now given the name of Varn, clarifies that the ship is full of outcasts and that he's been connected to the machine and guarding the planet for 500 years. Further, although he observed the construction of B5, he wasn't planning on revealing the machine in the planet yet, uh, but that his failing health forced his hand. The other aliens must not be allowed to take control of the planet. It is for the future. Sinclair talks to Delenn and Drawl, who say that, yep, definitely Sinclair knows everything they do. And they, once Sinclair leaves, begin discussion about what Varn meant by the machine needing another. Londo turns up as he was also contacted by the alien and says that the three of them need to talk. Londo wants to help. He also realizes that one of their group will have to stay behind on the planet permanently to, to take care of the machine. The three of them break Varn out of MedLab and head down to the planet in Londo's shuttle, which Londo pilots in a similar fashion to a small child playing Mario Kart. The planet doesn't attack them on their approach, and Garibaldi follows as battle begins above the planet's surface. Garibaldi catches up with our band of miscreants at the heart of the machine, and Drawl explains that he is staying behind, that this will give him the purpose that he's been seeking. The battle, meanwhile, is not going well. B5 has been hit and is about to be hit again. But the ships and station go dark as a holographic image of Drawl appears. He states that the planet does not belong to any of the attending parties, only to itself and the future and places its safekeeping in the hands of the B-5 Advisory Council, trusting in their enlightened self-interest and their knowledge that the planetary defense systems are now fully operational to make sure that the, the planet is left well alone. The alien ship disregards this warning, heads toward the planet, and is promptly vaporized. Back on the planet, Delenn and Drawl say farewell, and Varn reassures her that the planet and its machine are indeed wondrous, and Drawl will see all the futures, hear all the songs, and touch the edge of the universe with his thoughts. Delenn, Garibaldi, and Londo head back to the station, and the Hyperion leaves with a half-hearted apology from Pierce to Sinclair for overstepping his authority. The B-plot this time doesn't really take place on B-5. We learn at the start of the first episode that an armed revolt has occurred on Mars, which is attempting to assert its independence from Earth. This upsets Sinclair, who was born there, but Garibaldi is particularly shaken as he tries and fails to contact a former lover, Lise, who still lives there. The two had been pretty serious until Garibaldi left Mars for B-5. Garibaldi goes to Talia for help. He knows of a secret Psycor training facility on Mars and asks Talia to use her network there to get him a communications channel. Talia isn't able to get him a channel, but is able to look up Lisa in the files, but this is ultimately uninformative. Garibaldi expresses his frustration to Sinclair, who also promises to try to help Garibaldi get a comms channel. Finally, 
Garibaldi gets a phone call and finds out that Lise is alive, albeit with minor injuries. Garibaldi suggests rekindling their relationship, but learns that she's moved on. She's in fact married and expecting a baby. Love that gut punch. Yeah, Garibaldi. You'll love to see it. You'll yeah, he's he's heartbroken, and and we all are very sad for him. Uh, and that's that's a two parter right there. Very good summary. Very concise. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I tried. A, I tried. It, it's, it's it's ninety minutes of television. I mean, honestly, the the plot is pretty tight on these two. Yeah. Yeah, something that I like about this episode, I mean, I, I, I like the whole planet plot and uh, the, the revelation that you cannot build a spaceship, you cannot build a space station around a normal planet. But um, I actually really like the storytelling of the B plot mm-hmm. as this is the fir- this is the I think this is the first time we leave the station in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and with a plot that with the a plot that is centered on something that is outside the station, an external thing, we've got this B plot that is about something back home, but we're not going to build new sets for it. We're just going to tell it entirely secondhand. And I think that's a really cool thing because I think it gives a very interesting sense of helplessness, uh, in the narrative. That all Garibaldi wants is to to have a freaking phone call with his ex-girlfriend to find out whether she's still alive. Mm-hmm. And he can't. Yeah. All they're getting is news reports from the extremely questionable news. Yeah. Well, it's uh, also a B-plot that's important um, because it's setting up the start of the, the Mars subplot where we've got rising tensions on Mars, the free Mars movement and you know, increased increased tensions back home and a sign that not everybody back home is comfortable with the direction that EarthGov is taking. Yeah. <clears throat> JMS takes a lot of very bold moves in the storyline with EarthGov and Mars and just goes headfirst into some of these very heavy topics about revolution and stuff like that and i mean we sort of dunked on him a little bit for the the way he handled uh the labor dispute with the station but it's the way that mars is handled mars's independence movement is handled is is a lot more interesting and nuanced this is also garibaldi content that i don't hate (laughs) as opposed to the elevator scene a rare and treasured gem yeah, that that I think I think this is showing Garibaldi at his most human. Yeah. That he's he's very relatable in this episode that he's he's freaked out about something that he has no power to deal with that he even pulls in his like wildest trump card which is, you know, knowing that Psychor has a secret base and that still doesn't get him anywhere. Yeah. But however, there is the the Garibaldi Talia Elvider scene, which uh, another one. Which why this? Just just like Please why? Please make it stop. Yeah, not good, not good. Yeah, they come so close in the first season to making you like Garibaldi on a few occasions, and then you. But then you know, if you pay attention, you realize like no. No, 
Garibaldi no. is terrible. No, um, he's he's a bad man. Yeah, he really is. And this is one of those episodes, though, where they like, you know, maybe you should actually like Garibaldi a little bit. But no. No. I can I can sympathize with Garibaldi. That does not mean I have to like him. Yeah. As for the A-plot, uh, obviously, this is an extraordinarily, like relevant long-term relevant and heavy duty a plot Mm. and which and which i super love i really really love um drawl i think he's oh yeah super fun he's a great character and i love his relationship with delenn it's also wild to have this back-to-back with the Minbari content with the warrior cast and legacies that here mm-hmm. we have Drawl, who is like, you know, your boisterous, fun uncle. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah they sort of. Yeah. But, he's... but, but, but who's now sad. Yeah. Yeah. Your formerly happy uncle who's now sad and is going to go strap himself now into a alien St. Andrew's cross. <laughs> Pretty much. The, yeah. This episode this episode has some really good bits too. So like you know just some really fun snippets of character like we've got Londo singing the hokey pokey. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your whole self in and you turn yourself about. You do the hokey pokey, you give a little shout. That's what it's all about. Which, Justin, if you can bless us with your rendition of that, I will love you forever. Okay, let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, I'm getting away. Okay. Um, You put your right foot in, you put your right foot down, you put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. That's... Spot on. It really is. Thank you. It's very good. <laughs> oh my god, that's so spot on. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> this is why I've been put on God's earth. Uh, speaking of God, yes, we also have possibly my favorite singular line out of season one, which is the Babylon Five mantra: Ivanova is always right. I will listen to Ivanova. I will not ignore Ivanova's recommendations. Ivanova is God. And if this ever happens again, Ivanova will personally rip your lungs out. Then followed by <laughs> Babylon Control Out. <sighs> Civilians. And then Ivanova just looks up at the ceiling and says, Just kidding about the God part. No offense. And just one more thing. On your trip back, I'd like you to take the time to learn the Babylon 5 mantra. Ivanova is always right. I will listen to Ivanova. I will not ignore Ivanova's recommendations. Ivanova is God. And if this ever happens again, Ivanova will personally rip your lungs out. Babylon control out. <sighs> Civilians. Just kidding about that God part. No offense. I know. It's so good. It's so it's just so so many really good character moments here. And like Alondo piloting the ship with this like manic glee. He's like a kid who learned to drive at twelve and then hasn't driven since. 
<laughs> yeah, that's about accurate. Yeah, it's it's very good. There's a lot of really good work going on in this episode. In these episodes. And just all all of Delenn's interactions with Drawl, like she's just so joyful. Yeah. No, I think I think that's part of what that's a really necessary thing that they needed to do with Drawl was like they they wanted to show Drawl as someone who had lost sort of some of his joy, but that he was fundamentally a very uh, a character a, a person that put a lot of joy in other people. Yeah. Yeah. And so him sort of losing that uh, was very, very hard for Delenn to see. And so when he goes into the machine and is reassured by Vran that, like, there's there's so much out that he'll, you know, this will give him, offer him so much that it was a comfort to Delenn that he would be, that he would find purpose Mm -hmm. in, in the machine. I don't know. It's just a really great, it's an episode that manages to land, like, on all points. It's well acted it's incredibly relevant to the plot and everybody gets a little bit of something to do yeah even garibaldi except for jakar i don't think jakar is like yeah there's no there's no jakar actually at all i think there's like a which is a distinct lack of jakar content tonight yeah which is real yeah which makes me sad but what are you gonna do so i i have something that i want to talk about about right that I want you to talk about Jude because you're the 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 resident Tolkien expert here. Yes. Um, I've always been fascinated with Drawl saying the thing of going to the sea. Mm-hmm. This thing of the Mimbari, I guess, going out into the sea of stars to find purpose and something to do at the end of their lives or something along those lines that that. Delenn treats it as though he's saying that he's going to go die. Yeah. And it's it's it always felt to me very much like the elves going into the west. Yeah. No, I get that. That's very that's a really cool analog. For Tolkien, the Tolkien does have a like sea fascination in in his stories. Uh, but I think the going into the West is a much better uh, analogy for what Drawl seems to be doing. Um, he seems to sort of like being drawn. He, he's got that malaise that you that the elves have, uh, and they're being drawn west for renewal. So I think that's a really good comparison. Uh, but I do think there's one thing that I think is a, a really interesting parallel, and that's that the reason why the sea calls to people in Middle Earth is the water is the only place that preserves uh, an echo of the song of creation, the the music of the Einar. And for some people, they can they get that just that little bit of that echo. They can hear it, and it like captivates them, and that's why they become fascinated by the sea. The music of the water like fixates them, and they become fast. And they become a sort of obsessed with the sea. And I think there's a, a really interesting parallel there with the way draw is is draw you know other and the minbari in general are drawn back to the sea of stars there because that's very much i think for them drawn back to the the space is very much a uh in other episodes they talk about their sort of religious connection to the stars and how their star stuff right we get the we get the the carl sagan delenn star stuff speech which is one of my favorite little speeches yeah and i think there's some interesting connective tissue there uh for him going sort of 
back to their creative roots there. Uh, and also for him sort of finding that purpose there in this machine that is going to, to sort of reconnect him with all this past and future and all the songs and so forth. I think that's really interesting. So yeah, yeah, there's some good stuff there. And we know that JMS is a big old fucking Tolkien nerd. So you can almost never assume that there's too, you, that you're, you're overthinking a Tolkien connection with Babylon five. Cause there's, so many of them and some of them are super overt and some of them are pretty subtle so uh, i think it's always fun to look for that stuff and this is this is definitely one of my favorite tolkien connections in that i feel like it lies somewhere in between yeah agreed that it's not like some of the things we see later where it's like oh well that's uh that that's straight out of lord of the rings um but it's not it's not so subtle that only a truly dedicated Tolkien nerd would catch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's there were a couple of other small things that I wanted to talk about with this episode. So we've got a tie-in with I, I didn't mention it in the summary, but there's there's a discussion about why Delen doesn't say anything to Sinclair about them going to the planet. And she says that you if if Sinclair had gone with them, he would be the one in the machine. And I think it's it's a tie-in to what we saw very recently in Grail with this notion that Sinclair is somebody who is seeking purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's also wild to think of how different things would have turned out had that happened. Woofa doofa. Yeah. I know, Whoa. right? Yeah. Uh, does, hmm, I'm trying to think what Delenn does and does not know at this juncture. That's a good, I don't think, uh, I don't think she knows the thing. Okay. You, sorry, buddy. You got to take him off again. We have to t- talk about the same thing. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just going to go, wa- I'm going to go shift my laundry and I'll come back in like a minute or two. Okay. <laughs> We're going to talk about the exact same thing we always talk about. Yeah. Activate gold channel one. I don't think so. They she knows that he that Sinclair the thing the thing that we talk about every time we make Justin take off their headphones is the Sinclair Valen connection. I don't think she knows that Sinclair has Valen's soul. I think she knows that his soul is a is that of a child of Valen. That's what because the triluminary glows for the children of Valen. Theoretically, I thought it was specifically that he has Valen's soul. Maybe I'm mistaken. I don't think she knows that because the triluminary glows for her as well. That is supposed to be a like genetic link that it glows for people with Valen's DNA. That the triluminary. That this is what I remember from the deep mm-hmm. cuts. So, th- so they know that. But in Delen case, knows. Delen doesn't yeah, Delen know that knows that he is Valen. She she just thinks that he's. A descendant or or Valen's soul has transmigrated over time into him or something like that. But she doesn't know that he is Valen. Right. That she doesn't know up until and I mean JMS doesn't know at this point either. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) But she doesn't know up until the point where she gets the box from that gets delivered to her from the ancient past. Yeah. But yeah, that's the that's the whole thing with the triluminary. So like that's the thing where Delenn is Sinclair's 
great 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 granddaughter yeah yeah you're good all right listeners i want you to know that in my commitment to the bit i actually did go put move my clothes to the dryer so what else do we think we have to talk about this with a two-parter i liked i liked the londo content too um and i felt like that there's that discussion again at the very end this there's some really interesting character conversations in like the last three minutes there's there's this discussion about how the adventure awakened something in londo that was long buried um and garibaldi you know, quips back that some things are better left buried and i feel like that's really wild in the context of the character development we'll see for Londo. Yeah. I feel like that's a that's a deep cut of foreshadowing right there. But I think I think that's it for this episode. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of episode. Yeah, this is uh we we covered three episodes and one of ours, which is uh pretty good. Yeah. Next time it's gonna be our penultimate episode for season one where we are going to be watching episodes 20 and 21, Babylon Squared and The Quality of Mercy. Babylon Squared. Babylon Squared. Dicks. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.